We are going to be in Second Thessalonians this morning, our second week of our series, Stand Firm, looking at this letter written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the Thessalonians, calling them to to affirm their faith, to be stabilized in their faith. We, we set this picture up last week that they're standing on the rock of Christ, but yet the water's crashing, the waves are rising, persecution is stirring, misinformation is spreading. You could say the waves of sin are crashing against this rock, and the letter is a call to them and now to us by the Holy Spirit to stand firm, to stand firm on the rock of Jesus, to stand firm in the gospel. This morning we're going to be in chapter 1, picking up in verse 5, and we're going to read about those that are worthy of the kingdom of God. In this passage this morning, we're going to see a bunch of different contrasts between those that are worthy of the kingdom and those who are unworthy, between those who are afflicted with suffering and those who are causing the affliction of others, those who know God and those who do not know God, those who obey the gospel and those who do not obey the good word, the good news of Jesus Christ. And and this is a difficult passage. I'll just say that from the beginning. It's a difficult passage outlining the final outcome of the two groups. And what we find this morning is that the faithful will be drawn into God's presence, will receive His glory. But those who persist in disobedience, persist in rebellion, the Scriptures say, will be driven away from God's kingdom and ultimately receive punishment. And so we ask the Lord to give us insight, to fill us with His grace and with His Spirit, that as we read, as we study, as we are filled with faith, that we would be counted as those worthy of the kingdom, worthy of the kingdom by God's grace. I'm going to get a little bit of a running start, pick up in in verse 3 that we covered last week. The Word of God says this, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. We see there in verse 5, it begins with a this. The this of verse 5 refers back to verse 4. The persecution and the afflictions the Thessalonians are enduring, we read about in verse 4, is clear evidence. It's a plain indication of God's righteousness and His judgment. See, the Christians in Thessalonica were suffering on behalf of God's kingdom. 
The gospel, while welcomed in their hearts, was not welcomed in their city. They had faced persecution from the Jewish leaders who had convinced the the Greek civil leaders, the Romans, to persecute them as well. But they were enduring. They were standing firm in the faith in the midst of their suffering. They were demonstrating that they were worthy of the kingdom. I mean, think about the reverse, right? If they had faced persecution and given up, if they had denied Jesus, well, that would indicate that they weren't worthy of the kingdom of God. That would indicate that the Holy Spirit wasn't truly in them, that their faith wasn't truly genuine, but they are worthy because they are standing on the rock of Christ, standing firm in the midst of persecution. And they are worthy. What does that word worthy mean? To be worthy means you're good enough. You're up to the standard. Now, who is worthy of the kingdom of God? No one. No one on our own is worthy to walk into God's kingdom, to be present in God's kingdom. See, it's only through faith in Christ, it's only through believing in the gospel that we can be covered with the atoning blood of Jesus, that we can be filled with His resurrection life, that we can be empowered by His Holy Spirit. It's the only reason that Thessalonians, the only reason that any of us today can with any confidence say, yes, I'm worthy to be with God, I'm worthy to be a part of His kingdom, only by the work of Christ. Only because of His righteousness, His sacrifice, His resurrection. And we see there in verse 5 that their endurance in the face of affliction is evidence. It's evidence that God is truly at work in them. Evidence that the Spirit has made them worthy because they are enduring. But it also says in verse 5 that it's evidence of God's righteous judgment. How so? We'll continue on into verse 6. It says, since God will surely repay those who are afflicting you, and, and therefore standing against God himself, that's evidence of his righteous judgment. In fact, it's righteous for God to repay those who are afflicting His people because our God is a God of justice. And see, justice requires that God right every wrong. His righteous character means that He always rewards good and He always punishes evil. And so surely He will repay the people that are afflicting His dear sons and daughters. And so Paul writes that those who are afflicting the Thessalonians now will one day face their own affliction from God in due time. They, it says in verse 6, will be repaid for the harm that they have caused. But verse 7 says that not only does God's justice means judgment for those that are causing pain, but God's justice equally means that God will grant relief. Relief to those who have suffered. Relief to His people. Those that have faced affliction in this life will receive relief in the next life. That's what God's justice means. When is this justice going to occur? When is this great repayment going to happen? Well, 7 continues to say, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. When He is revealed from heaven, it's described as in flaming fire with mighty angels. Now that Greek word revealed, when Jesus is revealed, is is the word apocalypse. And that word has become used in in common culture, right? It, It means the end of the world. An apocalyptic movie is a movie about the end of the world. But specifically, more accurately, the Greek word apocalypse means revelation. It's identifying when Jesus is revealed from heaven at His second coming. That is the apocalypse. It's the second coming that the New Testament authors talk again and again about. That Jesus Himself predicted and prophesied that He would return. If you're with us in the fall, you remember that that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 described this is the time when the Lord Jesus would descend from heaven and all the Christians would rise up to meet Him in resurrection bodies. 
Verse 8 here in our passage this morning says that Jesus will come in flaming fire. Fire is often associated with the presence of God in the Old Testament, especially when, when God's presence is manifest in judgment. He often reveals himself with fire. And so the return of Jesus in judgment is this event that's going to happen in the future. It's a future reality, but I believe it's something that should impact us, should transform us even now. Think about this teaching for Christians that are afflicted, like the Thessalonians were. Think about what this teaching would mean to them. Now look, in the United States, you could certainly observe that discrimination, that even hatred of Christians is growing in segments of our culture, segments of our country. But the reality is that most Christians in America are still living pretty cushy lives. I mean, that's, that's just the truth of it, right? But that's not the case other places in the world. In other places in the world, professing Christ as your Savior is, is literally criminal, is literally dangerous. I read this week that one in eight Christians in the world are facing some type of persecution. In places like Kenya, Nigeria, Somalia, Libya, in countries like China and North Korea and Sri Lanka, in the Middle East like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran, Christians, our brothers and sisters who love Jesus are facing physical affliction, physical harm, political and social persecution. And for them, the promise of judgment on their oppressors, the promise that one day they will find relief from their affliction, from their affliction, Can you imagine how powerfully this passage and these promises must impact them? And so, yes, this passage this morning is talking specifically about those that suffer because of their faith in Christ. But I believe that these promises are equally true for all suffering that we experience on earth. Because suffering as Christians doesn't only come for naming the name of Jesus, although at times it it does come in that way. But we all suffer. And hear this, God not only sees Christians that are persecuted, but He sees all Christians that suffer. God sees you in your pain. He sees the pain of your sin, your own sin and the sin of others. He sees the abuse that you've suffered. He sees the disease that has riddled your body and the bodies of those whom you love. He sees those that are wrestling with mental health. He sees those that are facing spiritual attacks. Brothers and sisters, our suffering does not go unnoticed by our God. That's what this passage teaches us. There is no sinner. There is no oppressor. There is no abuser who will ever get away with it. Because God is good and He is loving and He is just and He upholds justice. Verse 7 promises that we will one day have relief from our own suffering, whatever that may be this morning. Whatever hardship you are facing, you will one day have relief. And this should give you hope. This should enable you to persevere in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your pain. It should give you strength and assurance that you can stand firm, that you can endure, knowing that God is just. I had one of those days this, this past week where I was just grumpy all day. And, and maybe I got up on the wrong side of the bed. I don't know. And I can't even point to like a specific thing that was wrong. It was not even like anything bad happened. It was just a bunch of whiny first world problems. But I was grumpy all day and nothing would make me happy. I felt like I couldn't do anything right, whether it was a conversation, a relationship, my, my attempts to, at ministry in the office. I didn't want to be around anybody. You guys know I'm a people person. If I didn't want to be around people, something was really wrong with me. And you know that feeling of having a hard day. Maybe it's a significant hardship. Maybe it's just grumpiness. But when you feel that, you feel stressed, don't you? And there's like a tightness 
that comes on. And it's either like there's a weight just pushing you down inward or, or it's like you're being pulled outward, right? You know that feeling of just stress and tension, like you just can't relax. Nothing feels good. Nothing feels right. That word in verse 7, relief, the Lord promises relief. It means a loosening. Isn't that a beautiful truth? It means that one day there will be a relaxing from our suffering. A relaxing from the affliction of this world. And finally we can just let our guard down and we can breathe and we can rest and we can be at ease in the presence of God. Without our sin, without our suffering, without our affliction. to, To fully rest and relax in the presence of God. See, when Jesus returns, He will bring the promises. He will bring this relief to His people. And so now we can have hope, knowing that relief is coming. Now we can persevere, knowing that your struggles are not unending. There is a definite end to them. And so persevere. Stand firm in the promises of God. Stand firm in the work of the Holy Spirit, even now. That while those challenges may continue, the presence and peace and strength of God will stand firm in your heart. As you hold on to Jesus. Now the passage continues. Beyond relief for those that are afflicted. Verse 8 goes on to describe further. What will happen when the Lord Jesus returns. And we see that. There will be punishment. Punishment for those who remain in disobedience. Verse 8 says that when Jesus returns, He will carry out vengeance on those who have been opposing Him and standing against Him. You remember from 1 Thessalonians, it was described as the wrath to come. Now, vengeance means avenging wrongs, right? Now, we have a concept of of, of vengeance in human terms, in human relationship. And and often with humans, vengeance means that you're vindictive, that you're malicious. You want to get somebody back. And often, vengeance from a human perspective is driven by selfishness. It's an overreaction, right? But don't read any of that into God's vengeance. For God, vengeance means upholding justice, It means defending what is good. It means defending righteousness. It means restoring goodness to His people and His world. Now many people, the the idea of God's judgment, the idea of His vengeance makes you uncomfortable. may even make you angry. may make you upset. But But I ask you this. Would you rather have a God that didn't notice evil? That didn't care about evil? Would you rather live in a universe where God didn't punish evil? Where wrongs were never righted. Is that really what you want? No. I I think we in our heart of hearts want justice. We want good to be rewarded and evil to be punished. And I'm not convinced that people in general are as turned off by God's judgment as we sometimes think. Because I think we want to live in a world where wrongs are punished and justice is upheld. You want to know how I know that? Look at the box office. Every year they make movies about vengeance, right? That make millions of dollars where the bad guy... Gets it in the end, right? And so you can watch Jason Statham in Wrath of Man. Or you can watch Denzel Washington in The Equalizer. You can watch Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. You can watch Keanu Reeves in John Wick. You can watch Liam Neeson in basically every Liam Neeson movie there is, right? It's about him taking vengeance on the bad guy. But there's something in our heart that that is excited about that. That that cheers, right? Even if it is a man-centered, selfish, overreacting vengeance. But look, remember, with God, vengeance is never vindictive or malicious. God's justice and judgment is always done with pure motives. It's always just. 
The punishment, you could say, always fits the crime. And there are never, ever, ever in God's kingdom any cheesy one-liners before the bad guy gets thrown off the roof. Right? God's vengeance is good. It's pure. It's right. And, and I think on some level we can all embrace God's vengeance as long as it's only directed towards like the really bad people, right? And we have these categories. The terrorists, the murderers, the rapists, yes, they should be judged. But when we start talking about judgment towards the regular people or God forbid judgment toward our loved ones, that's where we struggle. But friends, if God is God, then we have to trust Him. That means trusting that we have love and mercy in Jesus. And that means trusting his standard of righteousness. That means trusting his methods of justice. And whoever he deems that need to face justice, we have to trust that. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God is good and right. I'm not saying it's not hard. But I'm thankful that God has both the desire and the ability to uphold justice in his universe. To maintain goodness That in the end, all will be made right. See, trusting in God's vengeance means that it's ultimately not up to us to avenge the wrongs of this world. And yes, as as Christians, we need to fight for what's right. We need to uphold the law. But if you see a wrong that goes unpunished, whether it's personally or, or culturally or politically or nationally, globally, when you see a wrong go unpunished, it's not up to you to take matters in your own hands. I can't believe that. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to do this. Do it. They need to get it. The vengeance of God means it's not up to you to avenge your wrongs. You're not capable of handling the task of judgment. Because only God in His righteousness has pure motives. Only God can weigh good and evil and be objective every time. Listen, judgment is far too important for human creatures like you and I. It's far too weighty. We need to leave it in God's hands. So Paul would write this to the Romans in chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord said that all the way back in Deuteronomy. It's a word for us today that the vengeance of God means we can let go means when we see wrongs against us or against our loved ones or against those in the world, we can live at peace. It's the vengeance of God that is, is exactly the doctrine and the idea that enables us to love even our enemies, to be at peace with all people, even those that are up to no good, even those that are hardened against God, even those that are out to get God's people. That's God's job. So who exactly receives God's vengeance? What does the passage say? Again, we return to verse 6. Verse 6 is talking about those who are afflicting persecution on Christians. Those that would cause the suffering of God's people, those that would stand against the gospel, will will receive their own affliction. But then in verse 8, those that receive God's judgment... It's broadened and it's described in two ways. It's described in verse 8 as those that don't know God and those that don't obey the gospel. Those that don't know God. Look, there's many, many insightful, true, and beautiful ways to understand our identity in Christ and understand how we are different 
the difference between those that belong to God and those that do not. You can talk about those that believe in Jesus and those that don't. Those that are born again and those whose hearts are still hard. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and those who are filled with their own flesh. But one of the most precious, one of the most meaningful ways to understand the people of God is distinct from the world is that we know God. Isn't that amazing? In Christ, you can know your Creator. You can know Him in a loving covenant relationship. But there are those that do not know God, that are blind to God, that are ignorant of God, that do not know Him and do not want to know Him. They do not belong to Him because they do not know Him and He does not know them. But verse 8 talks secondly about those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Obeying the gospel. We often think about the gospel as an invitation. An invitation to come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. And we should invite and we should persuade and we should make the kingdom of God appealing. Check that. We don't make it appealing. We show people that it is appealing. Right? That life with God and forgiveness and joy and peace and right relationship with your creator is a beautiful reality. But not only is the gospel an invitation to believe, the gospel is also a command to obey. And if you don't, if you don't get that, think about this. Think about you're driving up 83 and you've got some, some kids in the back. And you get a flat tire and so you pull off on the side of the road in the middle of rush hour and you hop out to change your tire and you forget to close the door and you look out of the corner of your eye and you notice that one of your toddlers has hopped out of the car onto the side of the road and you see them turn around the car heading towards the busy I-83. How many of you in that moment would invite your toddler to get back into the car? No. You would command with all the force that you have, you would command that child to get back into the car or face danger. Our God is Savior and our God is King. And the Father in love commands His children to come back to Him, to turn from the rebellion of sin, to submit to Him, to turn away from the danger and the destruction of everything that is outside of God. And yes, there are times that a loving father will invite his children to come to him. But when when he sees them walking in rebellion, when he sees them endangering themselves and others, he will command his children to come back with all of the power and all the authority that he has. See, it, it ultimately is only a cruel, apathetic father that is, allows his young children to play on a busy highway and doesn't command them to come back into the yard, to come back into the, the car. In, in fact, even come back or you will be punished. But the hard reality is there are those who do not obey the gospel. They do not hear the gospel with ears that they can truly hear. And so they don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. They don't listen to the voice of their creator. And so verse 9 says that they will face punishment. Verse 9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Suffer punishment is, is, is better translated, pay the penalty. They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Because here's the reality. If you break a law or you break a rule, you pay the penalty. You face the consequence. And in the end, in God's universe, every debt of sin will be paid for. Nothing will go unpaid in God's universe. Either Jesus will take your penalty and pay your debt or you will pay it yourself. 
And the, sta- the, the consequence of standing in opposition to your creator is, is death. It's destruction for all of eternity. That's what the word of God that we love and trust says. It says that there is an eternal ongoing death away from the presence of God, away from the glory of his power. Theologian Leon Morris describes it like this. He describes it as complete ruin, the loss of everything that makes life worth living. He says it's the opposite of eternal life. Now again, verse 10 says that this is going to happen. This will happen on the day of the Lord's return. The day that Jesus appears. And on that day, those who have believed the testimony of the gospel, those that are submitted to Him, verse 10 says, when He comes, we will marvel. We will wonder at the glory of the Lord's coming. It says that Jesus will fully and finally be glorified in us, His saints, His holy ones. He will be exalted in our hearts fully and finally. But there are others who will see the Lord coming, and rather than marvel, rather than submit, those that have not believed when they see the Lord's coming, they will be further hardened and further embittered against Him. If you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 1, it says that when the Lord comes, that believers will be gathered together with Jesus. This beautiful reality that we will be with the Lord. But chapter 1, verse 9, as we've just read, says that that unbelievers will be driven away. Away from the presence of the Lord. See, the essence of eternal life is to be in the presence of God. You want to understand heaven? I can't tell you every detail of heaven, but I can tell you this. You will be with God. And there will be rest in the Lord's presence. But the essence of eternal destruction is being without God. Being without God. See, the Bible does teach this notion of of conscious eternal punishment. And what we commonly summarize is the good old H-E double hockey sticks, right? Hell. Jesus taught about the reality of hell again and again. He spoke much, much more about hell than he ever did about heaven. He referred to it with an image of unquenchable fire. He talked about it as being cast into the outer darkness. He said it was a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those that are weeping are weeping in misery and in despair. Those that are are grinding their teeth are doing so in anger and frustration. Even in the outer darkness, they're still full of anger and hate and frustration, grinding their teeth. And so the Lord Jesus would say this in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. The word that Jesus was using there, that he often used, that we translate as hell, was was the word Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash dump outside of Jerusalem, where the trash and the, the dead bodies of criminals would be laid and would be burned, and it was a disgusting, burning, smoldering, smelly, awful, godless place. That's what Jesus described is the eternal destination of those that refuse to obey their Father. But many people, I think we, even today, we have a distorted view. Even in the church, I think we have a distorted view of what hell actually is. Hell is not cruel and unusual punishment. Hell is, is not God cackling in some torture chamber, like the pit of despair, inventing new ways to, to torture people. Yes, hell is, is a terrible existence. It's a place of punishment and it's destruction. 
But as I said, God is just and He is good and He is right. And so the punishment always fits the crime. My wife, as a theologian, describes hell this way. She says it's like you're watching TV and the internet goes out and you got to log back into Hulu or Netflix. And you got your remote with the four arrows, the up, down, left, right arrows. And you have to sit there up, down, over on the little alphabet thing and put in your full email and then put in your full password. And then you press enter, but lo and behold, you missed a character and you got to go back and do it all over again. Right? She says that must be what hell is like. We often, I think, don't have a grasp of hell because we don't have a grasp of of sin, of what our disobedience and rebellion against God is. Our sin is hostility towards God. It's not, well, I didn't know any better. No, it's hostility towards our Creator. It separates us from Him. Sin puts a wall between us and God, the Bible says. But in this life, while sin creates a wall between us and God, there's still light. Right? There's still the light of God coming around the wall, over the wall. And so even though we live in sin in this world, even though there's a a wall of separation between those that don't know the Lord, between them and God, there's still enough light that they can live, that they can see the imprint of God in creation, that they can experience good things. But hell means that the wall of sin has become infinite. As far up and down and left and right as you can see, it's an infinite wall completely cutting off humanity from God. And so his light cannot get around the wall. And so hell is a place of total darkness. It's an eternal existence, but it's not really living. It's the experience of eternal death. It's unending disintegration. One commentator said, it's like a long, dark night where morning never comes. Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, the biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before His face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose His presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capability Forgiving or receiving love or joy. No God means no joy, no peace, no love. God says some will be cast away from his presence. And we must understand that the essence of sin, the reason for this penalty is because the essence of sin is defiance. It is pride. It is self-reliance. It is saying, God, I don't want anything to do with you. It is being self-absorbed. And so as a consequence of that defiant, self-absorbed sin, God says, okay, if that's how you want to live, I will remove myself from you. I will leave you alone for all of eternity. If you want to be left alone, I will leave you alone. But all you will find is suffering. But, but still that defiance, that grinding of teeth saying, why this way? This shouldn't be. It's not right. That grinding, that's, that, that, Defiance and arrogance and self-reliance continues. Friends, there is no one in hell crying out to God. I'm sorry. Just give me one more chance. There's no one repenting. Because repentance doesn't occur to them. Because like a convicted criminal alone in a dark prison, they are still too arrogant to admit that they're even guilty. 
They're still too defiant to accept that a pardon is even possible. They're still far too self-absorbed to even look out of themselves, outside of themselves. They're still too angry to even remember what joy was like or even long for the possibility of joy. Still too miserable in their sin to believe that another reality is even possible. This is what the Word of God, the same Word that gives us the gospel of forgiveness and new life in Christ, gives us the reality of eternal punishment. So what are we to do? What are we to do as Christians, people of joy and hope and peace, Christians of love, Christians of hope? I don't think we can just ignore it because if you read through the Gospels, Jesus talked far too much about these realities for us as his followers just to ignore it. I think first of all, perhaps first and foremost, we should stand in awe and stand in fear of God, a God of goodness, a God of justice. Be in all of him. And if you came in this morning flippantly looking at God, you came in this morning thinking that you have your stuff together and God is maybe a little helper, that you're maybe equals with your creator, know today that our God is above us and beyond us. And I think these realities call us to awe and to revere our great God. But secondly, I think it it calls us to hold on to Jesus. Because God is righteous and God is just and the only hope that we have is to hold desperately and dearly on to Jesus because there is no one who will stand before God either at the moment of your death or at the moment of Jesus' return. There is no one who can stand before God and profess to be worthy on your own. The only hope that we have is to hold on to Christ your Savior. And so if you came in today and you know Jesus, but your faith is weary, let it be awakened, let it be stirred, let it be reminded that you have nothing but to stand on the work of Christ, to hold on to His death and to His resurrection. Let your faith be renewed, not out of fear, but out of hope and out of a desire to not be cast away from God, but a desire to be with God, to know Him for all of eternity. But thirdly, I don't think we can read this passage in the Word of God this morning without being stirred to warn others. Because if these things are true, and they are just as true as I'm standing here, and just as true as Jesus lived and died and rose again, then we must call others to trust Jesus. We must warn others, invite others, and maybe at the right time and at the right place and with the right relationship, maybe even call and command others with the authority of Jesus. Come back, come back, step out of the road. You're only going to find destruction. We read in verse 10 that the reason the Thessalonians believed is why? Because Paul, Silas, and Timothy shared the testimony of the gospel with them. The only way people will be warned, the only way they'll be invited and commanded to come back is if the Holy Spirit speaks through us into their lives and calls them to truth. And this is a hard reality to speak to your your siblings, your spouses, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends. Say, there's a God that loves you and there's eternity apart from Him waiting that you do not even want to imagine. But if you will come to God now and trust in the Lord Jesus, then I call you this morning, come to Him. I warn you now, those that have not yet fully given yourselves to Christ, I warn you now by the authority of God's Word and my hope and pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that He would speak to your heart 
Don't be cast out into the darkness. Come into the light. Come be with your Father. Come be with your Creator. All you have to do is to fall down on your knees and trust Jesus and say, I don't want to stand on my own anymore. I need forgiveness. I need new life. We would love to pray with you if that's you this morning. Find a leader. Find a friend that invited you this morning and seek them out after church and say, would you pray with me? I want to know God. I want to answer the call of the gospel. Let's stand in awe. Let's hold on to Jesus. Let's warn those whom we love and whom God brings into our lives. Let's, let's be men and women that would be worthy of the kingdom of God. That means holding on to the hope that one day we will have relief. For those of us that, that suffer, we will have relief from our affliction. But it means that those who stand in defiance, in rebellious disobedience, there will be just punishment. And so we hold on to these two truths. The truth of relief and the truth of punishment. We hold on to these truths and we need resolve. If we're going to live this and believe this, we need resolve. That's what verse 11 talks about as we wrap up this morning. Verse 11 says, To this end we always pray. In other words, with all of these things in mind, with all of these realities in view, we pray for you, Paul says. We pray that God would make you worthy of His calling. God's calling there refers to that effectual call, that initial moment when the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart. And maybe even now the Holy Spirit is speaking. Maybe even now the Holy Spirit is calling some to come to Him. That moment that He called you from death into life, when He called you into His kingdom, when He called you to be with God, to know God. And so the prayer of verse 11 is that we would be worthy of the calling. He calls us His sons and daughters, those who otherwise are completely unworthy. We have no interest in God. We love our sin. We love to disobey God. We love to find pleasure in ourselves. We love to exalt ourselves. But through Christ, we've been washed, we've been forgiven, we've been filled, and we're now, through His grace and His grace alone, rebellious sinners have now become worthy of the kingdom of God. And the only way to get into God's kingdom, the only road to God's kingdom is across a bloody cross and through an empty tomb. It's the only way to get into God's kingdom is through the work of Christ. And so, in light of this calling... These missionaries pray for the Thessalonians and we pray for you now that God would empower us to live a life worthy of this calling. Now to fulfill your calling, we see there in verse 11, means to to live with resolve. That every desire that you have for good would be fulfilled. It means that you would fulfill every good work of faith, it says. Every good work of faith done by His power because true faith in Christ, if you truly believe in Jesus, true faith always works. True faith always drives a life of good works. And so we stand firm and we persevere in the faith. We are resolved, brothers and sisters. We resolve to do good. We resolve to live for God. We resolve that our faith would not just be some private internal thing, but it would change the way that we live, change the way that we treat others, change the way that we walk in obedience before God. Resolve to work out your faith in Christ, to live worthy of the kingdom because Christ is coming again. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but the Lord Jesus will come again. This world will be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth. And His followers will be drawn into His presence. And those that do not believe will be cast out. And so we need to live today, resolve. Resolve to do good, resolve to be people of faith. Resolve to testify to the gospel. Resolve to to invite and to call others to believe, be rescued. Ephesians 4 
Paul would write this, I urge you to walk, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And verse 12 says, so that, so that when Christ returns, the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. That means that when He returns, and even now as we live for Him, He would be glorified in us. He would be honored in us and we would be honored in Him. That's what it means to live lives worthy of the kingdom. It means to live for the Lord Jesus. And when He returns, we will fully be filled with His glory, exalted with Him as He returns to God. All of this, verse 12 says, is according to the grace of our God. None of it is outside of God's grace and His mercy on us. Friends, the worship team is going to pray and we're going to stand in a minute and we're going to sing about that glorious day. The glorious day of Christ's return. The glorious day when we were rescued from our sins. And I pray that this morning you are stirred to faith. You are stirred to stand firm. You are stirred to walk only by His grace worthy of the kingdom. Amen? Let's stand together. God in heaven, we come to you humbled. We come to you maybe troubled may be confused. But Lord, we don't have to like everything you, you proclaim. We just have to follow it. And so God, we trust you. We trust you as a father that is good and right, that is loving, that cares for his children, a God that upholds justice. I pray this morning for those that are suffering affliction, that the promise of relief would bring comfort and perseverance to them. God, I pray for those who don't know you, who have not yet obeyed the gospel. May this be the moment. May this be the day. Even as we sing, would they cry out to you in faith? Would they turn to a friend or neighbor? Would they come find a leader? Would today be the day when they when they pray and submit to you and receive Christ as Savior? Because we know that that day is coming, that glorious day. That glorious day of Christ's return when all will be made right. When we will fully and finally stand with you when evil and sin will finally be put down, will be bound up, will be cast away. And so we sing together. In awe we sing. In hope we sing. And we worship our great God. Come Lord Jesus, be present even in this place now.